losing hope is a privilege that we don't have. I mean, what if we lost hope? We go to the Bahamas and wait the world to burn? From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With me today is a climate mediator from Sudan, whose work cuts across borders, regions, and continents. Scientist by training, climate change activist by nature. For 10 years, she's worked on global warming issues related to policy, peace and security, migration, energy, and youth empowerment. Until March 2023, she was chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. Nisreen Al-Saim, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much. We'll talk about your mediation work in a moment, but I'd like to begin with your early life and influences. You were born in Khartoum in 1995, a time of great turbulence, to put it mildly, in terms of national politics. General Bashir's regime was well established. A state of emergency was declared in the year 2000. And elsewhere in the country, there was war raging. What impact did this political and security environment have on you? Well... <laughs> It's funny because I don't think there is a big difference between 1995 and now. Mm. <laughs> um, Sudan was always a country that experienced a severe instability. Um, but I think the biggest life-changing incident that happened was one year after that, which is 1996, where we were put in under the terrorist-sponsoring countries and then we were under the sanctions for as many years I lived until um, the revolution happened and, and, and the transitional government were in place. But for all of my life in Sudan, we were so disconnected from everyone and everything um, financially. So no money coming out or into the country technically. I still have, unfortunately still, have to travel to another country just to download Microsoft uh, Office in my laptop or just to update the iCloud on my iPhone. Um, and of course, this made our choices and uh, options in life very limited. And that's why we, we had to create our own entertainment. Hmm. And when you were just 10 years old in 2005, a peace deal was signed between armed groups in the South and the government in Khartoum. I mean, you were 10 years old then. Do you remember talk of peace or did it all feel quite distant? I remember when John Gering was killed because a massive uh, violence event and happened. This is John Gering, the, one of the South Sudanese leaders. He is the, mm. not one of. <laughs> he is the South Sudanese leader. And it was a shame. I think if he was still alive, the, the future of the Sudanese country would have been different. But I remember because um, a lot of burning, a lot of screaming, and we couldn't get out of the house for three days. And I, now I think of all of what happened as a, an audition for, for the situation that's ha currently happening, which is a bigger war, of course, than the um, clashes or the violence incidents that we had. You decide to go to university in Khartoum and study physics. Why choose a science degree? Well, because everything around me was not scientific. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe I could reinvent the wheel and discover something and, and, um, and be the scientist that solves the problem. 
But then very soon after I um, I got into university, I realized that it's not only science that that saves the world. We we need to to merge science with other other things. Well, your career has been a bringing together of, of science and politics and many other fields. But I want to talk about your, your university period, and in particular, when you witnessed a, a terrible shooting incident right in front of you at university, which was a real turning point in your life. What happened then? Um, so South Sudan separated 2011 July. And it was soon that the economic situation in Sudan collapsed because it was 100% built on the oil and gas coming from South Sudanese wells. Um, and the idea was that when I entered the university, the government decided to do the first lifting of the subsidization from many of the um, important goods. Um, and the country were already very much poor and the people were already suffering. So the students took the street in December 31st, 2011. But the incident happened the second day, which was the first day of, um, of 2012. It, it changed my life because it was that moment where I decided that I don't want to do physics alone. I need to couple it with, uh, with politics. And it's not the scientists who make the decision around the world, unfortunately. I mean, <laughs> it's very obvious that we are not living in a scientific world, per se. And uh, it was also a changing moment because especially someone coming from uh, my background from Sudan, you have designed lifestyle. So you need to go to kindergarten, then primary school, then high school. We don't have an intermediate, so we go from primary to high school immediately. And then to university, and then you get a job, and then you get married, or you get married before you, <laughs> you get a job, or wherever. But that incident gave me a break of three months that I did not expect. Not only me, but even my family or my parents. It was not wrote in any of the previous scripts for my life. Mm. Um, and these three months is the months where I um, discovered about climate change, where I volunteered in an organization working in environment and climate change. And it's these three months that gave me the time to be who I am right now. Well, I want to get onto your climate work and understand that better. But before that, I'd like to also understand this political side of you, which you reference. And in particular, your activism during Sudan's difficult transition over the past few years, the revolution. And you know the protests in, in 2019 that saw thousands of people come out onto the streets to demonstrate against General Bashir's rule. Tell me about that time. Yeah. A lot of people think that the revolution happened um, suddenly. And they are definitely people who are not following what's happening on the ground in Sudan. I spent in university seven years, not because I'm stupid or because <laughs> I failed years, <laughs> but because every year we had a major event that led to the university being closed. So in 2012, university closed for uh, three months. 2013 was the first very conscious organized movement against the Bashir government. And, and they were very uh, aggressive killing people at that time in 2013. And that's why it did not succeed. But I know if a lot of resources were already there in 2013, we could have had the revolution that time. It was also the Arabic Spring. So it was a revolution in Syria, revolution in Yemen, revolution in Libya, every, Egypt, everyone around us were like, eager for freedom and justice. 
and of course, Sudan was not a difference. Um, but it didn't happen. So the university also closed, but not because of us this time, because of the external situation. 2014, another student was killed inside of the of the campus, and the first incident were not shooting. They actually throw the student from a balcony. It was a wow. third floor. But the second one in, in 2014, it was shooting. It was, a, I remember it was a midday. And then I, I noticed that there's people coming out and there's people running and screaming. I didn't understand because it was a very normal day. And then I saw someone with a clashing cough firing on the air. And then someone came from the other side and said, she, uh, they killed him. And I was like, who killed who? At that time, we were very pro in expecting if someone is dead or not, unfortunately. So the university closed again um, in 2014. In 2015, it did not close. But 2016, we were threatened that the university would be closed. We were so much headache to the government, so they wanted to really close the university. Um, so I was active all the way. I was not politically involved in one of the parties, but I was always representing the faculty, sometimes representing my batch in the negotiation with the government, in the negotiation with the administrative of the university somehow. And of course, in a lot of remonstrations. I mean, when um, the revolution in 2019 happened, I was already demonstrated 48 times. <laughs> <laughs> so you were no amateur. You, yeah, you, exactly. It wasn't your first time out on the streets. No. And, and what did it feel like in those early days and, and the hope maybe you had? Uh, we, I didn't have any hope. Even from the beginning? when you From the beginning, I, I had the hope very late <laughs> because it was only us. It, it was like all of the Sudan was brainwashed and only the University of Khartoum students who are still surviving. Um, and it was only us in the street, and everyone were like, they just can't do their studies, that's why they are protesting so much. So <laughs> how did you feel then in 2019 when the scale of things just kind of erupted massively? I cried for three days after the first demonstration. With joy? Yes, mm. because the first demonstration I was... <laughs> so there is a, a long street, it's called the University Street, and it's called like this because of the university was there and we've never made it to the half of the street. It was always very aggressive, pushing us back. But that day, we did finish the, the university street going to the palace, the presidential palace, and I, I saw people I didn't know, because normally everyone around me is someone I already know, because we are coming out of the university together, and it was amazing. I, I still have... Goosebumps. <laughs> yes, when I remember that day. Eventually, General Bashir was ousted as a result of you and so many people coming out on the streets, and there was this transition period that should have led to civilian rule. What's your personal sense of what happened to derail that transition? Well, human greed. This is the big title I can use. Um, it, it was, of course, the Bashir loyalist who still um, focused on hindering and... and taking down all of the attempts to actually have a stable country. But it, it was also the greed of the politicians and also the greed of the military, definitely, definitely the greed of military. Uh, but the most painful was the greed of uh, the neighboring countries. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the neighboring countries had a huge role, even bigger than the people inside of the country. Because you feel that they supported the military and others to do what they were going to do. Definitely. The coup of the 25th of October 2021 was definitely supported by the neighboring countries. 
it sounds like you feel that the that spirit of the revolution has been betrayed. <laughs> it's not new for Sudan, you know. We had four revolutions before, uh, four dictatorships, four transitional periods, and never succeeded to actually finish it. I think I thought this time would be a bit different, and this is only for one reason, is that we were determined more. And y you can see that this time was really different because the coup happened in, in October 2021. Until last April, they never been able to actually formulate a government. In, in another situation, they would have do it the second day and then shut everyone's mouth and you have to live with it or die. But this time they couldn't. Um, yeah. The coup happened. Currently, the world's attention is focused on the outbreak of violence across different parts of Sudan. To give our listeners some context, fighting broke out between uh, General Burhan, head of the army, and the general commonly known as Hemeti, leader of the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. Previous tensions were brought to a head by an internationally backed plan to launch a transition with civilian parties under which the army and RSF was expected to cede power and the RSF was to be integrated into the regular armed forces. What's needed to bring this to an end? <laughs> you want the honest opinion or the diplomatic one? <laughs> <laughs> Which do you think? <laughs> the honest opinion, I really think that this war will never end unless one of the two sides were killed or um, won. A battle is, to the death. Yes, it is. It, it was since... The fifteenth of April, and you can you can understand that this is very obvious from the media, um, the the media engagements of the both generals. Um, it was very personal from the beginning. They both did not have uh, an aspiration uh, other than eliminating the other, and it's still there. So why things should change right now? And this is the only reason that makes me feel that it it will take longer than anyone expect. Yet, it this doesn't mean that we should lose hope and stop doing whatever we are trying to do. It just means that we need to prepare for the worst while doing mm. our best to end the situation. There are a wide range of efforts that are going on now to try to manage the conflict, find some sort of resolution, difficult as that is. Are you worried about another elite deal between two security actors that will leave out civilians, and especially women and young people like yourself who came out in the revolution? At this point, if this elite agreement will stop the war, I don't mind. Oh. It's, yes, we want a, a perfect um, political situation, but the priority is to conserve the life of the people. Um, and currently for me, uh, any solution that ends this war will be my best choice. And if there's, say, a ceasefire which manages to reduce the violence, then what would you like to see happen afterwards so that the aspirations of ordinary Sudanese people will somehow be realized? Uh, I think this question means that you still don't understand the size of the, of the catastrophe that we are in. Uh, currently, I think more than one million Sudanese people will have no homes because it, they will 100% burned or destroyed. Every kind of business, small scale, big scale, even if you have a small restaurant, was 100% looted and destroyed. All of the cars were destroyed and uh, stolen. 
all of the banks, I mean, not the, the central bank, but the branches and the small um, offices of the banks were 100% looted. I'm talking about total loss in terms of economy, in terms of lives, in terms of infrastructure. Um, so even if the war stopped tomorrow, um, Khartoum as a city, for example, will not be able to be lived in until maybe end of this year, just with the minimum of survival. Al-Jinayna is no-go. Al-Jinayna needs at least two years for rehabilitation. And um, yeah, yesterday I was talking to someone who managed to get out of there alive, and he told me that um, a minimum of 2,000 uh, 2000 were killed and it's a genocide it's actually a genocide mm -hmm. so they are picking what kind of tribes what kind of uh, um, race to actually be killed and there is no infrastructure whatsoever there and a lot of people were killed not because of bullets or being targeted but because they couldn't access any kind of health services or etc uh, Al-Ubaid is not a big difference from, from the Geneva situation yet the numbers of the victims are a lot less are you worried that Sudan is in the headlines now, but then at some point, given the scale of what you've described, that the international community would lose attention and that that enormous task of rebuilding, if we ever get to that point, is, is just going to be neglected? You are saying if, but I say it is happening already. Um, mm. uh, Sudan was in the, was, and I highlight was, in the headline for a long time um, in the last month, uh, but not anymore. Uh, the existence of the news about Sudan is not the same. There is some sort of um, intention um, closure or intention um, quietness uh, about the situation in Jinena specifically and in Al-Ubayid, and everyone is focusing on Khartoum, which is even making more racist issue. Yeah, so it is happening already. The world is forgetting about Sudan already. Let's take a step back and uh, move on to the climate, because this is something which you've made a huge part of your work. You call yourself a climate mediator. For those who are new to this term, maybe just start by defining it for us. Actually, I call myself climatolic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a workaholic, I hate to work. <laughs> so I always do it smartly, not hardly. Mm. <laughs> Um, but I have um, a huge weakness to climate change. I cannot say no to anything that is climate related. And I think it's because I know how much impact it does to the lives of people. And I call myself climate mediator. Um, and it's actually not a mediator. I'm, I'm a conflict preventer. Mm. Because doing climate action is normally building the resilience of the communities, which reduce significantly the conflicts, specifically over our natural resources over uh, uncontrolled migration, the frustration from not having enough food and water, etc., etc. I want to understand what you mean by conflict preventer and what that work looks like on the ground. But first, maybe tell our listeners, where did this passion come from? Where did you see the impact of climate change up close that made you so determined to work on this? I will tell a small story, and it's very recent. It's 2020. And the whole world was under quarantine because of the COVID. And we had the privilege to be quarantined only one month. Everyone I know hated the quarantine. But for me, I really wish if we were in quarantine instead of what we were actually doing. In 2020, we had the most devastating flood in 100 years. 
and uh, more than 800,000 lost their houses, um, um, I think uh, 600 deaths, millions of dollars were, were, were lost actually in terms of cattle, uh, in terms of uh, crops, in terms of agricultural land, etc. So we spent uh, July, August, September, and October trying to relief and, and, and help the survivors of the flood. And this makes me feel like we can't even quarantine as the rest of the world. <laughs> we can't even share that the thing that everyone hated because we had the worst situation. So if that's the problem and we, we see that devastating floods exacerbated by climate change have this huge impact, talk us through what we can do about it. You mentioned resilience, you mentioned conflict prevention. How do you actually do that work on the ground? My answer will also feed into your previous question, why so passionate about climate change? And just to, to have the Sudanese context, not, not the African context, not the global south one, but the, even the Sudanese context. Sudan is an agricultural country. If we can't do agriculture, then we can't live. We can't survive. We cannot earn money. We cannot feed ourselves. Nothing. And climate change is a direct threat to agriculture. That's number one. Number two... The infrastructure in Sudan is so poor. I mean, we are talking now about um, just transition, energy transition. And it's like, guys, let's keep it real. What transition? I mean, in Sudan, only 30% have access to electricity, which means that 70% of the population never known electricity in their neighborhoods. Nothing don't to transition from. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we don't really have any infrastructure. And the little one that we have... We don't afford to lose because if we lost it, it will take us hundreds of years to rebuild what was building also hundreds of years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just conserving the little bit that we have right now and being able to provide for ourselves and families and make livelihood is, is what. But coming to the second part, how we do it. Um, so in these last 11 years of activism in climate change, I've, I've been toured into different layers of, of work, starting with the, um, building the capacity of local communities to do climate smart agriculture, to use uh, greenhouses, to do smart irrigation, to do water harvesting, into advocating the government to take more measures to combat climate change in, in Sudan and writing policy papers, into negotiating in the multilateral fields of climate change, passing by um, briefing the Security Council about climate change and peace and security three times uh, until now, uh, ending up being an advisor to the highest policy-making process in, in, the, uh, in the UN, which is the Secretary General himself. Um, so I've, I've been toured into different ways, and, and the only way, the only thing that makes me try different things is none of the previous work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you, you have this incredible range where you're, you're advising at the highest level, you're also working out what can be done at a grassroots level. A big part of the Paris Agreement was action for climate empowerment. And that's a slogan, but you're a living example of it. Can you give me an example of some specific groups you've worked with who you thought, I want to help empower them too? So Action for Climate Empowerment is actually not only a slogan, it's a, an article in Paris Agreement. So it is in, in deeply embedded in the system. And uh, there is six arms for this Action for Climate Empowerment. Public participation, 
public access to information, public awareness, and international cooperation, training, and education. So these are the six pillars of action for climate empowerment, and I'm trying to just use all of them somehow. But there is a lot of groups, uh, there is regional but also age uh, groups, and by age I mean the youth groups, and uh, there is Yongo, um, of course, there is the Pact Japan African Climate Justice Alliance. There is a lot of movement that's happening right now um, to combat climate change, whether it's geographic or age um, determined, and anything I can provide to any of them, um, I try to do. Gender is a big issue in climate negotiations. Explain why women are so important to combating global warming and how you've used gender issues in your negotiations. Well, it's it's complicated in the negotiation because there's always nice slogans, but there is never resources to actually implement them. Mm. <laughs> and I think this is the biggest problem with, with gender. Um, and they came up with something called GAP, Gender Action Plan. Unfortunately, the GAP have big gaps. <laughs> <laughs> and we were trying in the negotiation to close these gaps, and it's more mostly connected to the resources uh, availability. But uh, why gender is so important and why women are so important? Because women are the most vulnerable to climate change, yet they are the most resilient. They can shift very quickly from being the victim of climate change into being the problem solver of the climate change. And it, I think they say the same in peace building. But my problem with, with women action in, interactions in peace building is that they always build the peace, but they never get the jobs. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's not the same, in, in at least in climate change. We still have a lot of problems in land ownership um, and stuff like this, but at least um, they get the credit for the work they do. You talked a bit about science and politics earlier. Science in theory makes everything measurable and fact-based, which one would hope would make negotiations easier. Does it, though? They decided to negotiate the science. So I remember in, in one of the sessions we had to negotiate the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. So if you're negotiating science, then yeah. how can science make things easy if, if it's negotiable? And this is a big slogan that the youth movement had uh, one year uh, was that um, science is not negotiable. But it's not making anything easier. Um, there's always questioning on who makes the science and for which benefits. And given that it is being negotiated, how will you describe your own negotiating style? <laughs> I, I said earlier I'm not a diplomat nor um, a politician. And, and being not a diplomat and not a politician takes a lot of skills from you because then you say things out loud. And hmm. you think out loud and you don't have any um, turning around uh, phrases and it's something I'm trying to learn a lot, but I'm, I've, I'm failing every day. You're too humble, because I'm sure that speaking truth to power is incredibly important. And I'm curious, when you're in some of these high-level discussions, how do they react to you when you're trying to, to, to really bring home the impact of what you've seen in Sudan, what you've seen in other countries? I've experienced leaving the room. I've experienced uh, hitting the table. I've experienced very bad face expressions, so I've experienced everything. Um, but I, I just want to tell you that I've been into a session where I had to give a speech, and the session was there, there was the 33 world leader. I mean, uh, Merkel, I, it was chaired by um, Boris Johnson. That must have been fun. 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think there was 33 prime minister and, and president, and I told them that I want to have a selfie with you, but if you didn't write, take the right decision, so I will delete it. And they were like, oh, who tell you we'll give you a selfie? And they <laughs> didn't. But uh, no, I, I just wanted to say that um, yesterday I was talking to someone, and instead of saying we were stupid, he said we were too clever. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the things that I'm trying to pick. And instead of saying to someone, you are stupid, it's like, you are too clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, extra of something turns into the opposite. Sure, so if you said someone, you are too clever, then <laughs> it means he's stupid, but the, without the, the actually saying... The diplomatic insult. Yeah, so <laughs> I think I'm still trying to work on that skill, but I'm failing, very much failing. <laughs> when we talk about these issues, sometimes people can feel a sense of paralysis and hopelessness. But as a climate mediator, can you give me some examples of where there have been successes, however small and localized? When I started 10 years ago, we were maximum 50 young people in attending the multilateral negotiation for climate change. Now, we are minimum 5,000. Of course, in a lot of times, quality is more needed than quantity, but also, in, especially in, in problems like climate change, you need wide spectrum of at least basic understanding of it. A second success, I think, will be that finally everyone says there is climate change. <laughs> because 10 years ago, a lot of people were still skeptical about is there is climate change or not. Now we just need to find the implication on different thematic areas, like peace and security, for example. There's been a lot of discussion about climate protests. You know, people sticking themselves to public transport or cars, holding up motorways. Given how little notice policymakers are taking to the climate emergency, where do you stand on, on these tactics? I mean, to, to essentially break the law in order to secure attention uh, on the topic. Well, uh, sabotage is the only thing I didn't do in climate action. And, and I, I didn't do for, for a good reason, which is I mentioned <laughs> uh, earlier. We, we have very little infrastructure, so I was never going to do anything to, to sabotage this little infrastructure we have. But in generally, uh, sticking yourself into public transportation makes us giving a big question. Is it the people who use the public transportation causing the climate change? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it the opposite? We are advocating for them to use public transportation and not using their own car. So what are you doing by gluing yourself to public transportation? It's actually ruining the whole concept. It's actually against everything we worked for. So for me, a lot of uh, youth climate movement that are more radical have no political sensitization, which is a huge problem. They also have no uh, classes, analysis, because it's definitely not the class that used public transportation that's causing it. Um, also, and I'm, I'm so sad to say this, but the big elephants in the rooms are normally not touched by these small actions. Mm the U.S. Army is one of the biggest polluters institute in the world, not saying in the U.S. Can these small actions touch the American um, Army? Mm, it doesn't. Shell, Total, can these small actions touch them? It doesn't. So it, it, we don't have time for this. We really need to be pragmatic and do bigger steps that makes bigger impacts because we don't, we don't have time again. Let's say we're having this conversation 
a decade from now at the Oslo Forum then. As someone passionately committed to climate justice, what, we, what do you hope could be achieved between now and then? 10 years, mm. I hope we don't discuss climate change anymore. That it'll be addressed? Yes, because I get to ask this question a lot. I have a baby, he's 11 months, and everyone says, oh, the young negotiator is like, no, my son will never do this because then it means I failed. Mm. If I pass this problem to the next generation, then us as a generation and the generations before us, we all failed solving this problem. No, I, I, my son would enjoy beaches and go and party and enjoy life and not, he would not have to do this. Can I just say I wish that mediators had the same level of self-reflection that you have. <laughs> I'm not sure that they do when it comes to resolving conflict and thinking about whether they failed or not. Yeah, but I think uh, that's why I'm not a mediator. I'm more an activist because the mediator's job is, <laughs> is just like the lawyer's. A lawyer can defend an innocent pe person, but he can also or she can also defend a non-innocent person. Uh, they work for the sake of defense in, uh, instead of, uh, of the actual guilt of the personnel in charge or not. Not all of them, of course. Some of them are more ethical, but I'm talking about the majority. With the mediation, is the same. The, the, the main task of the mediator is actually to create a ground for discussions between the two parties of the conflict or more than the two parties. But it's not his job to guarantee that this will actually um, reach to an agreement. And so if you wanted to send a message of inspiration or hope to fellow activists such as yourself, what would it be? Losing hope is a privilege that we don't have. I mean, what if we lost hope? We go to the Bahamas and wait the world to burn? We can't afford going to the Bahamas, and we can't also wait for a world to be burned. So water breaks the rock not by being so strong, but by, by being so determined. So this is what we're trying to do. Well, on that note, we must end. Nisreen Asaim, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you. <laughs> and there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you, so if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey in the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at AdamTalksPeace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Lee Buidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>